What's up, everyone? The show is back. This is Unbuckled Chinstrap. I'm your host, Paul Rabel. Today's guest is Jules Henberg. Jules is one of the best and brightest stars of the PLL. He's been uh, really close with Mike and myself over the last couple of years in particular as he's transitioned his life, not only personally and professionally from the East Coast to the West Coast, but has been you know, one of the players that's invested everything he has into his skill, into his continued growth as a player. And not just that, but as one of the black lacrosse players in the PLL that is and has been in a leadership position over the last decade or so. And uh, Jules and I talk about all of that, and in particular, his viral Standing at the Crossroads poem that he read after the murder of George Floyd. Uh, I believe it was that Monday, or, or per- perhaps it was actually that Friday night that he released it following the killing on the Wednesday night. It's now been over three weeks, so excuse my, uh, my missed timeline if that is the case. But Jules then has made appearances across the board in digital and social and uh, has been an amazing leader. So Jules Hennenberg on his life as a lacrosse player from youth all the way up to where he is now as one of the best in the world. <clears throat> Jules, where are you at, man? I am in San Diego, California. You are? Yeah. I, I always forget. I can never remember if you're on the East Coast or West Coast. <laughs> nah, bro, we're never going back to the East Coast. You're so never like, going back? Back, That's it. It's just like, it's just like I don't know. It's like for us, like we want to be able to train year-round outside. And I don't want to be able to, you know, I don't want to have to go into gyms um, in, in the wintertime to work out and find space. Training kids and coaching and stuff is like my passion, right? So be able to do that outside year round is the is the best and you get the you get all of that on the west coast i think it's like the same and it's just the winter times are, are not here so why would i go back you know i mean pops what's what's pops think about it i mean he's he's all for it he he did some you know he traveled so much like in his life that he knows that the west coast is that uh, is great i think um he almost went to pepperdine and my grandfather was just like you're not going to pepperdine to play hoops. <laughs> pepperdine had a tight yeah. hoops team at the time yeah, he was like, it's just going to be out of control if you go there. Um, so he just stayed stayed east, and I think he kind of just built up, you know, his his community, his family there, which I just knew that right away coming out of school. I was like, I don't want to do the whole New York City thing. I don't want to live in Hoboken. It's too cold to train kids outside, too cold to work out outside myself. So like, what else is there, you know? Yeah, it's interesting. <clears throat> I've thought about that a lot since being out in L.A. for over a year now Is is you see a lot of primetime athletes come out of – Texas and California, but then you also have a lot of hoops players come out of Maryland, but basketball is also an indoor sport outside of, you know, playing on the courts, but, you know, competitively you're in a gymnasium. So it's, mm-hmm. it's a different prospect of a sport like soccer, football, lacrosse, even volleyball, where I think there's just a really high contingency of athletes that come out of Texas and California. And you can look at, oh, well, the population is higher so they're going to have more players come out by math but i think it's just the four seasons to you to, to what you had talked about i mean texas is a little bit different it gets super hot california you can you can bet on like 75 degrees across all four seasons but yeah you don't you just don't have to worry about it. we grew up on the east coast where especially in lacrosse you worry about field space and you don't have that yeah, out just- west yeah i don't know if you uh do they have the indoor winter leagues in your area that you play in kind of in high school? When I was in high school, they started propping them up. 
um, but we mm-hmm. we we didn't even know what box across was then at the time. So I remember playing because I had developed. I started, I played in my first one when I was a junior in high school, so I was already pretty developed as a player. And so you have mm-hmm. these small rinks and uh, and six by six nets. And I remember being like, what, what is this? Like you get the ball out of your out of the front gate and you just bomb one because you're already inside yeah. of like 15 yards and it's dark, yeah. so the goalies can't see it. But it was fun be, just to be active. But I, I'm sure your experience was different than mine. I mean, we had this thing called ISP. Uh, it was probably similar to you. It was not real box lacrosse, but it was in a condensed, you know, field. But they played with the six by six goals. And then you'd play it like the games would be very short, 30 minute halves. And it's like, I do that once a week. But if I'd grown up in California, it's like, I could just be outside, be outside. every day. Yeah. Kind of working on my game anyway, um, outside of going to play. Cause it's the wintertime. So I'd play basketball during the week. And then Sundays you had off. So I'd pick a mile across stick and go play that. But it would, you know, it would be so much more ideal if I grew up, you know, being able to be outside the whole time instead of the one time during the wintertime yeah. that confined space for 30 or for 30 minutes. Yeah. Whatever it was. Yeah, good. Good weather is also good for my mental health. And just being oh, yeah. like sun yeah. being out, nice weather, going on a walk. But yeah. I mean, even in March, playing at Hopkins, we would have freezing cold games. I remember my freshman year, we played UMBC. I think the first or second week of March, and it was so cold. I remember uh, our sweat was like freezing on our cheeks, and uh, and it was like so painful. All you wanted to do was stay in the game so you could keep moving because as a midfielder, when you'd sub out on a specialty possession, you just stand and you start jumping on the It was so fucking cold. It was the coldest game I ever played in. But then, you know, we'd play with snowbanks in the beginning of March for, for most of the four years I was there. So it, it's it's wild uh, to think the um, the experience you get. I mean, even this offseason, you know, I'm, I'm training on the beach in December before I go home. And you take you quickly actually take it for granted the uh, the mm-hmm. ability to to be a year round <laughs> athlete. Totally, I think uh, I wouldn't trade my experience for anything because I, I think it really builds character, and I, I see that a lot with the kids that I coach out in California. Is just the idea that they're they're so comfortable the entire time of their process growing up through sport that when they go off to these schools, like the kid that's going to Hopkins, he gets there and it's just so tough all at once. Where if you kind of are able to grow up through it. Now we're, we're older and we're trying to, you know, maintain and be professionals. It's like, all right, we're, we're good. We had that experience. We built the character in it. And now we can kind of enjoy, you know, the nice weather for our mental health and the ability to train outside. That's exactly what Mike was saying to me yesterday. We were, we were talking about this topic and cause he went to Dartmouth and played football and he said mm-hmm. a lot of people would be like, no, nah, I'm not going to Dartmouth in New Hampshire because it's just freezing cold year round. And, mm-hmm. uh, and he was like, who cares? Like uh, you just, when you grow up on the East coast, you don't think about the four seasons and specifically the cold weather and the rain as a negative. You just view it as, all right, this is something that's part of my normal environment. And then when you get mm-hmm. away from it, you're like, oh shit, I don't want to go back there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who do you, who do you live with in San Diego? Uh, I live with, uh, Johnny Pearson who played at Ohio state. He was, uh, I think he was the leading goal scorer for that champion uh the team that got to the final uh national championship 2017 yeah big lefty there were a couple other canadians living here before the covid stuff happened are and he, then uh they kind of went, went home are these nll guys does pearson play in the nll yeah yeah nll guys are all on the seals yeah. and uh so it's kind of just me and him right now it's been fun i mean he's uh he's a big guy so he, he works out a lot and um he's a great athlete so he's been able to keep up with me and, and challenge me in a lot of ways for training 
And uh, it's been fun to get to know him a little bit more, just being one-on-one. How have you been uh, progressing through quarantine? Were you were you uh, very self-quarantined or, or co-quarantined with Pearson in the beginning and you guys making your way out? Because San Diego is like in phase two or three right now as my, uh, Mike's fiance's family's there. So they'll go down on weekends, like restaurants are open, bars are open, people are out in parks. Yeah, I think when it first started, it was like, I was making a lot of strides in the gym. So that was like my biggest thing was, all right, how am I going to be able to continue this momentum? From yeah. The gym? Yeah. So once I got that, that kind of underneath me with the, I got a couple of uh, kettlebell two 10 pound weights. I have my jump rope. I have the bands. I have everything. Once I got that routine down, I was like, cool with it. You know, like for me, I think, you know, we hang out as, te- as a team so much in the summertime and then you go home for the, for Christmas and then you have New Year's, all these time to hang out and, and do a lot of fun things. It was actually nice to kind of take a step back and be like, I'm going to focus on myself um, and really not worry about going out or, or trying to see too, too many people. It was like me and my roommate working out, grinding, doing work, you know, a lot of th- stuff's going on in my life. Like how can I really just hone in on, on what matters? And I think that that was a great blessing for me from COVID. Um, and I was able to do that in a lot of ways. And then now I kind of look at it like a lot of those things that I missed out on, like I don't really even need them anymore. You know, it's kind of like, I don't need to go to the bar all the time. I don't, I don't need to see all these people I don't actually care about. Like I've, I've been calling and talking to people that I actually care about. It's nice to meet new people um, and build new relationships, but it's, it's all like my kind of, um, you know, my dime now when I want to go do it instead of being like forced interaction. Cause I got to go to the bar. Yeah. You know? Yeah. What about, uh, you do a lot of, uh, coaching and motivational stuff, uh, mm-hmm. as you talked about with, with younger kids, I, I was asked by a number of schools and programs to give advice, just shoot like a quick video to give advice to kids. And I was doing that during, uh, quarantine and I'm sure you were doing that too. But, uh, the message that I was always thinking about was, all right, everyone wants to stay active or keep the momentum that you had alluded to. And yours was from a fitness and physical standpoint. I had been out on the field shooting a ton, like ramped back up to four or five days a week. So I had a bunch of momentum there and I I like actually couldn't continue that momentum. I found a a wall in my garage where I was going hard on uh, from a stick skills standpoint. So what were you doing from a lacrosse standpoint? And then how do you, how did you advise younger kids who didn't know what to do? Yeah. So from lacrosse standpoint, I was lucky where I coaching at Torrey Pines high school. I still had access to that field for a while. And then kind of when that <clears throat> got shut down a little bit, cause they, they noticed a lot of kids were still going and they weren't comfortable with all these kids kind of just showing up, running around good, bad, or indifferent. I, I noticed that the, that the police were, were really not taken to that. So they kind of locked that field up. And then we had the seals uh, outdoor arena that we still had access to. So that had a wall and a small net. So oh, I was wow. golden on that. And then um, as far as just when speaking to the kids in general, I think the biggest thing was just having them find different ways that they could continue to, you know, recognize the opportunity within this. Um, as much as it is, you know, hard, I think something when I was younger, I always was able to get over challenges um, and, and kind of overcome things. There was never anything in my life that I, I vividly remember being like, this defeated me. But I think as I've gotten older, I've started to realize that like without those challenges and those opportunities, like I wouldn't be the person I am. Um, and I've kind of been super aware of that. So now like I look at this, this opportunity is like, if I was younger now with the mind I had now, I'd be so excited about it. Cause I know these kids are all dealing with this in real time. And if you can overcome this and figure out how to get better through this, like you're going to be flying high for the rest of your life. Like yeah. this has been one of the craziest obstacles for all of us in so many ways. And, 
um, just kind of giving them confidence in that and, and giving them little, you know, tricks of the trade in terms of, you know, being able to get their sticks better when they just have a little bit of a backyard and, or being able to physically condition, just be that 1% better every day without thinking too much into it. The fact that you're like not on the field with your teammates or you can't go to the gym, there's still, you know, all that, that stuff didn't always exist and people still got better. So kind of how can you do that and how can this opportunity in itself really allow you to, you know, grow as a person. And, and those guys that are able to see that, um, that I continue to talk to, like, I know when they get to school, they're going to, you know, it's going to be punching school right in the face um, yep. with, the, with college across in that sense. Yep. You've told me about, uh, on a number of occasions, like the challenges that you've had as a player growing up, um, being under-recruited, not starting your freshman year, uh, you know, having to, you know, play lefty attack and then you know getting a tournament snub at Rutgers like you and you've also told me you internalize that and, and use it as motivation what um what what were some of like the big motivational milestones or failures that you had as a young kid and then getting through high school and into college yes yeah, so I think <clears throat> kind of like right when I started playing lacrosse um and it, it kind of just circles back to everything that's been going on um in terms of like you know, just the the black experience and the and the and the Black Lives Matter movement for me, like that stuff was really internalized as a young player in the game. Just because I, you know, I didn't look black. So when I started playing, I I came from like the other side of town where like all my friends are black growing up. My dad's black. I was playing basketball. When I started playing lacrosse, right, as a young player, I very much always felt like an outsider um, to start off. Like in, right when I started playing, when I got to that first practice. And like that immediately just like put a chip on my shoulder. And I didn't know at the time totally what, it, what that chip was, but it was very much like, how can I break through in lacrosse and be like, feel accepted. Right. So right away, that was like a huge thing. I was always trying to overcome. Um, how can I like make these kids, you know, make it like for this, it was very much me like socioeconomic. Like how can I fit in with those, you know, those affluent white kids or like, how can I make it, you know, so I'm one of them. And I always felt like the better I got to lacrosse, the more that I would be accepted into those kind of circles. So that was always like a big thing for me. And that kind of carried through high school when I transferred to a prep school, right? When I got there, I know I was, again, I was like an outsider. I was like, how can I kind of fit in with these guys who I'm not coming from the, you know, the same background, we don't have the same money. I'm not in the same clubs. It's like all this stuff. So I always try to use lacrosse to be like, how can I like kind of push through um, in a lot of ways? And I think that in itself, like kind of tied into a lot of like, why I didn't get recruited, how I ended up at Rutgers, how like being at Rutgers was always like not a blue blood, blue blood program that was kind of viewed as like, you know, Hopkins, if you guys lost eight games, but you're in eight, eight and eight, it's like, all right, well, it's still, Hopkins can still get into the tournament, but like Rutgers, we lost one game and that was it. Like I knew that by my senior year, if we lost to Army in February, like if we didn't win the Big Ten tournament like that, we were casted out. And that was always kind of like a direct reflection of how I'd felt growing up with, you know, being you know, always having to like be not better is in the right word, but like kind of have everything, all my ducks in a row um, to kind of feel accepted. And um, so that was a whole big thing going on with lacrosse side. I think um, basketball, I dealt with it as well. Like just being smaller. Um, a lot of my friends grew up quicker than me. Like by eighth grade, I broke my wrist and, and that kind of like was my shooting hand. So I was always like a shooter. I was like, I'm small. You know, I'm not as physical. Um, maybe I can't jump as high, but I could always shoot. And I had high IQ. But once I lost, you know, that jump shot, immediately that crushed my confidence. Uh, then it was like a big battle because I always want to play basketball in college. So, like, once that happened, I was like, all right, well, this pipe dream's over because um, I don't have that confidence anymore. So that was a big thing for me. And then um, 
transferring schools at um, sophomore year, I transferred schools or no junior year, I transferred schools to Seton Hall prep. The old school I was at very much um, fell in line with, there was a coach there and he just, because we had an experience my freshman year that dated back to like, I started playing varsity basically in fifth grade, like with the kids um, in the summer times. So fifth grade, we would go to these camps. I'd play with older guys. You know, everyone would notice what I'd do on the field, good, bad, or indifferent, right? But it, it was quickly like, all right, Jules is going to be able to come into, into our local high school and be able to help us as a freshman. And then by eighth grade, we were playing, or seventh grade, I was playing in those summer teams with those older kids. And I was, you know, one of the top two best players in the field in sixth, seventh grade. So eighth grade comes around, we're playing um, in, that su- in that summer tournament again, same in the same thing, or summer league. That fall ball comes around ninth grade. I'm playing. I am like the best player probably on the field. Spring season comes around and I find out that like, I'm not allowed to play varsity. And it's like, dude, we've been, I've been doing this with these guys for like five years now. It's like, this is not like a, it's not like I, I never, I never talked about it, but I always knew and everyone knew. But then for some reason there was a rule that said like, I couldn't play varsity. That was what the coach said. So you were a freshman. I wanted to, yeah. Cause I was a freshman. So I went into his office and I was just like, dude, like, all I want is a tryout. Like if I'm not good enough and you, that shows in the tryout and everyone doesn't seem like everyone sees that I'm not good enough. I'll cut, I'll cut it right there. I'll play freshman. I'll do whatever. He's like, Nope, not going to happen. I remember I cried for the whole day. I was crushed. Fast forward sophomore year. I'm allowed to play varsity now. It's like, obviously like I'm playing and I'm, I'm one of the better players. I'm me and my other friend are, you know, the one, two punch and my brother as well. Um, I was second on the team in points. And it's like the whole year, the guy was just like, saying all this shit to me just just belittling me consistently the coach because yeah the coach and i was just like it got to the point where i was just like dude i'm not gonna keep giving my all because i i like you know for me it was blood sweat and tears lacrosse like i was giving my whole life to this game um for all these reasons right and like i just felt like why why isn't someone like respecting that right because it was never about me like i was a player like i was a distributor um i worked the hardest like i did everything for the team and it was like this coach just didn't see that. And then that was like hurtful to me, right? Because I was like, I feel like I'm doing way more than all these other guys. I'm uplifting them. I'm working out more than them. I'm the better player. I don't ever talk about that, but he's still bullying me. And I was like, I got to get out of here. So that was a huge thing for me to transfer. Um, Did you ever talk with him about it? Did you ever sit down and you're like, hey, man, this is how I'm feeling? No. So it was like a weird thing. It was like, we never, I never had the confidence to go into his office and be like, what, like, why? Yeah. So I'd always like, I always kind of asked my brother because I didn't know, right? Like I, I felt like maybe it was me. So I, I'd be like, Dylan, I'd be like to my brother, like, yo, like, dude, like what is going on? Like, what am I doing wrong? Like you hear what he's saying, right? Like, and then I tell my dad and my dad, of course, you know, my dad, like, he's like, all right, well, like what the fuck is going on? So then my dad started to kind of like um, talk about it and tell their parents and be like, yo, like this and that's going on with my son. Like, like that's not right. That Jules is being treated this way. And like, meanwhile, my dad is a very confrontational person. He's not scared to go up to someone. So like, it was very one of those things where the coach thought he could kind of treat me some way without me telling my dad. And then my dad being like, listen, my man, like this is me to you right now. And, and this is what you're, you're talking to my son. Like that's not going to happen anymore. For some reason, that guy thought that that wasn't going to be the case. Yeah. Um, so with all that being said, like, I was like, I got to get out of here. Like, there's no way I'm going to, I'm going to drag these rest of these guys and these, this team that don't want to bring this program to where I thought it could be um, good, bad, or indifferent. I'm not going to judge them for it, but they don't want to be the player. I want to be or be the team that I want us to be. Um, and the coach doesn't even like me. So why would I continue to like pour my heart and soul into this program? And then, uh, I luckily had a coach, um, and my, my the prep school I ended up transferring to the Catholic school scene hall that, um, we had a player there 
who was from my town that knew all this was going on. He was like, yo, like Jules is like, this is what's going on with Jules. This is who he is as a player. Like you need to go get, make sure you get him because he will help our team um, in a lot of ways. And then I ended up transferring that coach, like got me in his history class. Um, it's a prep school, right? It's a very different community. I was public my whole life. Don't come from a lot of money. And I'm kind of just trying to get acclimated. He made sure that I was taken care of in every way possible with that. And then when I started playing, we were two and eight, right? Because I had to sit out for 30 days. Um, just, that was just the, uh, transfer rules? Transfer rules. Um, 30 days so the in the spring. Game. So it wasn't like 30, 30 days, days at the spring. start of the, of the school year. Nope. 30 That's days weird. start of first game of the season. It was either 10 games or 30 days. Why'd you tra- did you transfer in conference? Like, why was that the case? That's just New Jersey transfer rules for oh. every sport. Hmm. And then uh, we were two and eight when I started playing, and then we went on a ten game winning streak, and then we made it to the championship in the states, knocked off number one team in the country. So it was just like kind of whole crazy thing. That Who happened. was the number but, one team in the country in New Jersey? Uh, Montclair, Del Barton, Del Barton, Del Barton was number two, one in the country. We knocked them off, and yeah. then my best friend, who was at Ward Melville, jumped to number one, and they won like the national championship. Yeah, um, he was he was at Rutgers with me. We didn't know each other at the time when that had happened, but hmm. which is crazy. Um, but that was just kind of this whole thing. And that was, that was a crazy thing for me. Um, so that's kind of just, did a you take into consideration I, like other, other things? Uh, cause I had transferred my freshman year, different reasons, but I was at a public school and my brother was at, and our coach actually just started bailing on the season. Um, he had mm-hmm. some, some personal, uh, challenges that he was going through. So he just stopped showing up to practice and so on. Mm-hmm. And so Mike and our captains would take over and run captain's practices. And I started getting a taste of some success as a freshman. So I was like, wow, this sport means a lot to me. We don't have a coach. I think I can pursue this at the next level. Little did I know how, how wide the gap was at the time, but I, I had a, a, a pretty uh, big sense of, of, uh, of, what I, of what my skill was at the time. That got regulated quickly, but um, that's what ignited the, the transfer for me. But I remember feeling uh, challenged by my friends that were in the freshman class that I was building uh, relationships with to just like, you know, my brother being at the school and the relative ease of access from a transportation standpoint is right down the street. Um, or were you, were you just so focused and hell bent on lacrosse that did you have like any of those other concerns? Yeah. So I had, I had concerns with my friends in the sense that not as much on the field, as more so just like comfort comfortability with yeah. like my friend group. But at the same time, you know, I had friends who had from our town who had gone to Seton Hall. Oh, so and people. I yeah. was, yeah. So I was still friends with them and I kind of like saw socially how they still interacted with our hometown friends. And I was like, I'm comfortable with that. Like during the week, like, great. Like I see you guys in class, but I'm not hanging out with you during the week. So if I could see you on the weekends, you guys, I, I know you don't care about lacrosse. It's fine. Like I'm not going to, I'm not mad about it. Um, I care a lot more and, and I want to, you know, I want to uplift the program and, and do something special for my, my high school experience, which like, I think that was part of just a greater journey through lacrosse in general with which I wanted to do special things in the game. But at the time I, I just kind of sensed that and it was like no harm, no foul. It was very much like that summer in August. I just like was telling my friends it was going to happen and no one really believed me. And then like I got accepted and then I got my polo in the mail and then I just posted like, a status about it and I was like yeah like I'm, I'm going to Seton Hall like I'm not gonna be at Columbia anymore and then everyone was like what the fuck like yeah. you're actually transferring I was like yeah like I wasn't joking like I'm not this is like this is my life like I knew that if I didn't leave that my life would have been totally different um so it was just like um similar to you I kind of weighed the cost benefit analysis of it and, and just pulled the trigger and, and luckily this- my dad was able to kind of you know 
support me in that sense with the financial limit. Yeah, and this is different than me though. This is during the social media era, which you talked about, uh, touched on briefly, and the like the mass means of communicating with with people in your class and others. Were you worried at all going back to the the, the con- I think one of the biggest concerns, and I like calling them out when um, when I get a note from a coach about his high school sophomore or junior or something is uh, is just the objective aspect of them losing a year of of recruiting which I think is it's important to acknowledge that pain or that fear that a kid or a family has because uh, that needs to be weighed equally as what you had suggested, which I agree is, with as well, which is, hey, everyone is facing the same climate right now, so you can use this as an advantage to outwork and outpace your competition. But from a recruiting standpoint, you know, whether it's now in COVID and, and a kid who's a sophomore now losing his sophomore season to potentially get some eyeballs and get recruited into his junior year, um, or someone like you and I who transfer in high school, were, were you worried about recruiting um, and that potentially losing momentum or confusing coaches? Or were you, what, what was your mindset there? No, just because personally, so I didn't, I didn't really know how recruiting worked, right? Like I, my dad, as much as he like loved the cross now, like he was doing everything he could to kind of find out for me, like where, you know, what needed to happen, what team I needed to play on. And so I played on a team my freshman year going in rising sophomore year with my brother. It was a local kind of one of the coaches that we knew, um, just kind of like a prominent New Jersey coach put a club team together. And my dad was always like under the source that he wanted me to play with my brother, like just kind of a bond thing always playing up like he was two years older than me. Like if I got that experience, my dad knew that it was like throwing to me the wall. I was just going to learn so much. So I was always like cool with that. I didn't question it. And so we played on that team. So my, my brother, I'm a rising sophomore. My brother's a rising senior. I'm playing in that summer with him playing against older kids who are already, you know, either committed or, or are just older in general, but we weren't going to tournaments where it was like, Hey, like Duke's going to be on the sideline. UNC's going to be on the sideline yeah. recruiting me, seeing me play against my own guys. So with that being said, that summer, right, recruiting shot up. And I didn't know this was happening. So the following year, sophomore year, I'm sitting at my public school in class. And I'm watching, like, seeing on Twitter, kids are committing to UNC, commit, kids are committing to Hopkins. Like, I remember Shaq committed to, Shaq Samuel committed to Hopkins in the fall of sophomore year. And I, like, didn't even know if these coaches knew who I was yet. Yeah. Meanwhile, there was, like, when we would play rec and do all these things with these kids who were getting seen by these coaches, like I knew where I stood versus them. They knew where I stood versus them, but the coaches just didn't know who I was. Cause I didn't even know what was going on. So in my head, I was like for my rising junior year, I just knew I needed to play on leading edge. Cause that was just like the t- team, New Jersey. I was like, if I get on that team, the coaches are going to see me and I know where I stand as a player. So then I set myself up to get on that team for my rising junior summer. And then at that point, the classes, like I remember UNC was my dream school. And at that point, they already had three attackmen yep. committed without me even being like seen by Coach Bressy. So I was just like, all right, well, I'm just going to go into this summer and do what I got to do and play like as best as I can. And like, hopefully, you know, hopefully I don't end up at D3 because there's no D1 positions left. But like, I didn't know what was going on. And then. Were you better than those three guys? Who were the three guys who had committed? Uh, <laughs> um, I think it was Brian Cannon, Patrick McCormick. And then I, I can't remember the last name, but. I know Brian Cannon ended up playing a good amount out of, mid, out of the midfield a little bit. I don't, he wasn't really, you know, star yeah. player for NCAA. And then Patrick McCormick, I had heard, um, suffered for some concussion, so he didn't end up playing. But 
Yeah. I mean, yeah. nothing, I'm, nothing that like, right. you know, that, but that's also a, a reality for a, a lot of, uh, you know, young players who are being recruited is there's a fear of just, uh, inventory being so small. It's so dynamic, right? You have, um, scholarship allotment available based on the senior graduating class ahead of your inbound freshman class. So like there's just, if you have a dream school, there's a little bit of luck around whether or not you're going to match up as your class with available scholarships. They're going to be vacant now because of a graduating senior class. You could have a senior class that isn't very funded that uh, graduates and therefore of the 12.6 scholarships that each school gets, it's fully funded. There's not much available for you. So if, if aid's important, that that's something that you just can't control. And the other thing is, you know, there are call it A minus B plus recruits that just jump on the opportunity without vetting the experience. And then all of a sudden you have three or the, the overall recruiting experience and they may feel like, Hey, Carolina is my dream school. But now all of a sudden you have three attack men that commit and your decision is different. And that, so it's, there's so many variables when it comes to recruiting. Yeah, I mean, you don't realize that though when you're you don't. Like, in the recruiting cycle. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to go to Virginia. I wanted to go to Virginia, and they filled their midfield class, and I was like, all right, fuck it, moving on. <laughs> yeah, and, that, and that's exactly what it was. And like, I, I honestly thought that because those kids were all getting committed that sophomore year, that there was no like Division One spots left. Like, I was that. I was like, I'm screwed. Of all the coaches that recruited me, I think Coach Wellner at Navy at the time and Coach Breck were both just like year and, and to some degree um coach lars at who's that who's at brown i just couldn't get into brown like he was like hey if you know you can get your grades better kind of on this scale to the point where you're this level as a senior you know you'll be able to get into brown i was just like i can't guarantee that's going to happen academically and um so it's kind of like that was tough but navy and, and Rutgers were like yeah like we really believe you can be like a big time player like we know like this didn't work out, but you're, this is us talking this conversation right now. Like, let's see what happens. And then I didn't end up going to Navy just because I thought it was too many years of a commitment when I was 15 or 16. It was really like five years. Um, it was Navy. It was four years at Navy plus Navy prep plus five years serving yeah. 10 years of my life that I was committed yeah, it's to a big commitment. I wasn't ready for that. Yeah. And then Rutgers was kind of just like the best of all there. Right? I was in New Jersey Coach Brecht wanted me the most, like Coach Wilder did. And then my parents could see me play. My dad could see me play. I could put, you know, New Jersey on the map a little bit, which I felt like no one was able to do. And I was like, this is kind of like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try this out. And I was like, I shook his hand. And like, when I do, when I shake someone's hand, and I do something like, like I just am the type of person that I'm going to make it happen. So like, I was going to go there with like an unrelenting desire to change the program. And like, you know, that's what I feel like I was able to accomplish to a certain extent. What happened? Um, on August 6th, 2013, when you tweeted at Ty Zanders and you said, Ty Zanders <laughs> really is a fool. Um, I want to say that was probably in the summertime. I want to say rankings came out um, <laughs> top 50 and top 100. And I don't think that was referring to me. That was referring to, again, because I was never like. I you were at, was, did he have you in the top 50? No, I was not on any so, of that stuff. Yeah, um, so Ty Sanders was a fool. Yeah, but it was referring what, to, so we had two, ki two kids on our team, Thomas Guida <laughs> and David Gill. And this kid, David Gill, like, at the time, he went to Duke. And Thomas, his older brother, Rob Guida, was at Hopkins. And both, like, were just tearing up the circuit. Like, I was always good in the summer, but I didn't feel like I played the level they played. And I was just like, how is it 
that these two kids are not even like ranked at all. I'm like, this is, I was always like, this is, there's something missing here with this recruiting stuff. Like, yeah. And so I was always just kind of, I was bitter, right? Like I was just always bitter like, trying to prove and trying to fit in. And like, that was for good, bad, or indifferent. That drove me like to be the player I was. And like, you know, I, I had to take a step back. Um, and I, I had that Instagram post about it. Um, you know, I, I posted in the fall, but just kind of reevaluate why I was playing the game and like kind of what my, my inner like frustrations were with it. Um, and kind of just release a lot of that and, and come to peace with it. Like I, I don't think I would have been the player I am today without that fire and that yeah. fuel. But I, I know that like on a journey, like you have to kind of reevaluate similar to like, you know, training wise, like if you play, you know, you train your whole life in the weight room and, and do all these things and, and to get, to get stronger, to be able to jump higher, all the stuff when you get to 35, you're LeBron, like you don't need, like now it's, how does he maintain? Like, how is he eating? It's like, how is he using the band? Like, all right, we're going to take a quick break in this conversation to recognize our podcast sponsor in Ticketmaster. Ticketmaster has been not only a supporter of the POL, but of lacrosse and universities all over the country where you've likely not only attended a lacrosse game by purchasing your ticket through Ticketmaster, but if you go into concerts and shows and all of the above, TM is the premier solution to attending live events. And we're actually working with Ticketmaster right now on strategizing the fans return to stands. But as it stands now... TM continues to be a presenting by sponsor of the POL and of this podcast. So download the Ticketmaster app for more updates, tag them in your tweets and do everything to support them because they support us. Back to Jules. Do you, uh, do you still feel like Ty Zanders really is a fool? No, now, you know, now being older, I think, do you think uh, he does a good job? Do you think he does a good job? And like, you know, it's hard. And he's like a, a lot of times the lone wolf up there making the calls because we don't have too much, you know, journalistic coverage of recruits. It's a huge landscape. I mean, we've acknowledged that coaches can hardly see everyone, so Ty can't either. But and I'm not trying to grind him. He loves the no, sport. No. He's committed to it. But you know, I it mean, do you think he does a good job or not? I don't, I don't know. I'll tell you my opinion. I think he, I think he does a good job in the in like in the confines of what he, he you know the resources he has. Like, there's only one Ty Sanders. Unfortunately, if you look at, you know, other sports, like there's a bunch of ties so yeah. that he can balance off and like throw ideas out. And like this guy can say this guy's better and he can argue it and like try to prove it more. And like, there's just so much more that goes into it. And I realized that with lacrosse, we're in such an infancy stage and in so many different like levels um, at the pro league with the PLL, like at the training side, at the recruiting side, the college side. It's just a matter of like, for me, how does that affect me as a player? And how can I hope that? as a player now that I hope that that doesn't affect other younger players yeah. to be, you know, turned off by the game. Cause frankly, there could have been so many opportunities that I could have kind of latched on to that anger and had it like turn me away from the game that um, I would hope that just doesn't, I know that happens to other players. Um, and even within the race side of the things, I know the kids that are, you know, that are darker than me, like are turned off because of all these things, plus their skin color. Like, so there's so many factors and now as a player, I'm just like, how can I help that? Right? Yeah. How can I push the game forward? I, I didn't mind. I didn't mind the tweet. I think uh, the way I view Ty and I've known him for a long time, and he came, he came, comes to our Project Nine events every year, and uh, is that I, I kind of view him in his own category, just as I view other athletes. So he's talent. He writes, and so as as a reporter, you're going to be held to different standards around the skill 
of the labor of reporting and journalism. Journalism, mm-hmm. um, but you know, I mean, this guy is out there to to, and, and from his perspective, to provide the best, um, you know, uh, perspective on the top recruits that are out there. And he's not going to bullshit. So he's got to have just like an athlete has their own perspective on on where they stand, just like you thought. Uh, and believe where you stood as a seventh grader all the way through a twelfth grader, relative to not only your team but those you played with. And I actually think the Heat is good, right? Like, where would that wouldn't have panned out if you didn't if you didn't say that because you yeah. you obviously felt that way and you shared that. So I think it's good. And for the same standard that we have to hold athletes to, all right, if you're going to talk the talk, you got to walk the walk. The same thing for for Ty and Co is like if they're going to talk the talk, which in their case is provide rankings on recruits, they better be able to walk the walk in their case is accepting and handling feedback from obviously the business of sport that we're in. And the feedback's going to be from players largely who are either underrated on his top 50 or not rated at all and probably their parents or coaches. And that's just the nature of the beast. If he's not getting heat, then he doesn't have any amplification. So if Ty's listening, <laughs> you know, it's just it's just the nature of what we do. I get heat every fucking day, you know. Yeah. And I it used to bother the hell out of me, and now I'm kind of like, all right, well, if I'm not getting heat, then I'm downhill. Um, so anyway, I brought I, I had that in my note. I was like, man, tired Xanders really is a fool. <laughs> but this had so so you had two retweets and nine likes. It probably have like 200 retweets and 900 likes if you put that out now. You should re- <laughs> actually, you know what? I'm gonna retweet that before as as a lead gen to the podcast. <laughs> Try to get some downloads. Don't delete uh, it. <laughs> I'm gonna screenshot I will not, it now. I won't. There's uh, another one I tweeted at him about uh, after we beat Delbarin. Because there's another thing, like, Del Barton's ranked number one in the country. I didn't play when we originally played Del Barton earlier that season at Teen Hall. I was, I was sitting out transfer rules, and we lost by one. And I was like, do you really believe that if I wasn't playing that game, that we wouldn't have beat them? Like, and I was like, they don't, they don't know this, right? Like, I'm yeah. just sitting on the sideline, see, the, see us lose by one, and I'm like, if I'm playing, we're going to win the game. Like, I just know where I could contribute on the field. And I'm like, but yet they were number one, and Teen Hall is not ranked at all. And I was like, all right, well, let's see what happens when we play. And we played him again, and we beat him. And then I tweeted at him, like, did he respond? Rankings. Like, uh, I don't know if he responded. He, he didn't he like the heat. He didn't like the heat back then. Yeah, he pulled it up recently though, and like, kind of just like, um, kind of fucked me about it. Just like funny because I've met him before, and like, oh, it's no harm now. Like, I don't. Yeah, it's all good now. Yeah. Uh, what about the what about the the burn the fire that you have in the PLL? You got you got traded. Is a big trade from the whips to the woods in the middle of the season. And then you went off in your first game, I remember, was at Homewood. That was your first game with the Woods, right? Yep. Yeah, I remember watching that and being like, damn, what's up, Stags? Uh, how, did, you, did you feel fire around that? Anything, any like personal vendetta? I mean, I know you have much more mature and kind of perspective around the business of sport, but you still, I mean, look, I have, I have to be able to, you know, differentiate between being a co-founder of the league and then playing and then the nuance of, of playing against, you know, competitors and friends on the other side of the field. And so it's complex, but what, how did you process in kind of like the modern version of Jules versus kind of the high school college version of Jules of feeling like, Hey, uh, this team obviously doesn't see what I see in myself and my ability to contribute or maybe the framing was, hey, the Redwoods made a sweet deal because they see it. But regardless, it's, you know, you anyone who's traded, and I've been traded, there's some burn. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of those things, like for me in that moment, I think the burn was, it was, it was a lot, right? So I knew that 
I knew where I stood as a player. Like I, I have not been confused on that for a long time. So I knew things were just kind of going how they were with the whip snakes for whatever reason, but I knew how to stay the course. I played a training camp. We had played the Redwoods and I had, I think I had four points in one quarter. Um, Cause I got in, I didn't start the game, started the second quarter, had four points, had another two points and I got pulled. So it's two quarters. I had six points. And it was like, for me, I always knew where I stood, but it was very much like on that team. For example, guys were just figuring out who I was. Like I didn't come from a big school. I played in Florida. Um, and I was the second leading rookie in scoring in Florida, but like I got my last concussion. Um, I got a concussion that took me out. So I wasn't like up for rookie of the year or anything yet. I still had number I was two. I was behind Cluche, but it was like, no one still knew who I was. And like, again, that was fine, but I knew that it was all about credibility. Right. So I kind of had to keep establishing credibility. And then when I got traded, I knew it was a chance for me to establish credibility in the sense that with my new team, who I knew coach Nap believed in me, like we had very, conversations about what he thought I could do and we were kind of stood you know uh eye level about that which I appreciated um with him as a coach because a lot of coaches I feel like have not been able to stand eye level with me on that hmm. um for my whole career um outside of my high school coach um coach G at Teen Hall he understood because he traded for me again right he got me from another program so he was like very understood what I was what I was um but I felt like that I missed that at Rutgers to a certain extent in a lot of ways and um I felt like I missed that with Coach Staggs to a certain extent. And then Coach Nat, we had it. But obviously that fire that was burning from, you know, since I was very young was still burning, right, up to that point. And I think kind of just taking a step back after the season that ended, I got another concussion in the Chrome game, another opportunity where I felt like I was establishing credibility. I got a concussion, and it was like, oh, like credibility has gone, like kind of out of, out of the conversation a little bit more, more so. And then I had to play those games at like through the championship like after I just came off a concussion, which is if anyone knows concussions, it's not easy to do. Um, and so I kind of had to take a step back in the sense that that fire is, it's always going to be there. Right. And it's necessary. And I think it's how you use it and how much you let it consume you is what is the most important thing. I think a good example of that. And one of the greatest athletes ever we saw with the last dance is with Michael Jordan. And a lot of this comes down to like just being present, right. And being in the moment is he would take or make things up about players and then use it to just fuel him for that game and then dispose of it right after that. Where like for me, this was just kind of constantly lurking in my mind, my body and just burning around. And then kind of like I was expressing that through playing, which got me to a certain point. But now like the way I look at it is I'm always going to have that fire. Now how can I switch it on and switch it off um, and not allow it to consume me um, because it's not about that, right? The game's not about, you know, how how I play on the field is great and all, but I think anything that comes to me is a byproduct of a bigger why and why I play the game, which is like, I know that I can inspire people, um, younger players, and that there's so much more for me outside of just playing the single game of lacrosse, but it's really very much like an expression of who I am. Um, and the things that come from that will be a byproduct of the work I put in, um, the player I know I can be to the best of my ability. Um, and if that stuff comes, great but it's at the cost of like, I want to win games for my team, my teammates and to do things bigger for the sport. So whatever comes to that, um, I'm cool with, and I want to be able to be the best version of myself in the moment, which I know a byproduct will be whatever accolades come of that sense, um, in relevance to performing. Right. And in that sense that I played on that, that game where I had eight points. Yep. And byproduct could be winning games. It could be a championship. It could be accolades, but I think it's also, um, you know, a larger share of voice and, and, uh, and kind of helpfulness 
and activism in your case over the last few weeks. Uh, now it's now we're now we're approaching uh, the third week here since the the death of George Floyd, uh, which I think was has <clears throat> been a a a, a larger. Um, kind of rebirth, I suppose, of, of the nation and the, and the world's attention to, um, you know, racial discrimination and racism largely and an elevated, very like, intelligent conversation around ways that, uh, in particular, uh, white people can, uh, be of, of support and allies and understand and, and potentially repair or seek to prepare the damage that's been done to the black community for hundreds of years. Um, and you were the first, um, you know, not necessarily the first, but you were one of the first in, in the lacrosse community. And I just don't want to like, um, uh, you know, schedule in, in like who made comments first as, as if that is, uh, is important, but you wrote, uh, you wrote a poem called standing at the crossroads and you read it and, um, you know, have you have been a part of the conversation from, um, you know, not only from a leadership standpoint, but from a from a feedback capacity to not only white players in the sport at all levels, but, uh, fans. So, um, you know, I, I would get, I guess it just to kind of give you a, a, a stage to, to talk about, um, you know, even though we've covered it a little bit, you know, why this moment is a, a larger byproduct of, of what you've been <clears throat> doing and, and how you have been reflecting on that since, you know, three or three and a half weeks ago. Yes, yeah, so I think, you know, obviously me and you have talked a lot about it. Um, you, you helped in the sense that you really gave me the confidence um, to really put it out there and then know that I had the support of the PLL, which I think for me, you know, one of the biggest things in this whole movement in general is like at the end of the day, you, black people as a whole can only do so much with the movement, right? Because the systems themselves and then the things that have been stacked against them Right. You can only unwind and unpack that because the power dynamics are what allow to really, you know, move the needle and the black people have never had the power. Um, you as, you know, a, a white man in the premier lacrosse league, a platform that is so built on inclusivity to like allow me to, you know, have that confidence, right. That allowed me to then go out and continue the conversation, which then led to, you know, a bunch of other stuff that, you know, some things I, I knew would happen, some things I didn't. Um, but I think for me, like, when I did come out with that, you know, staying at the crossroads, it was very much the experience I'd had leading up to that point, the skin color I have, the way that I feel like people perceive me, and the idea that because of that, no one would assume that I had an agenda, right? Because a lot of the times, you know, black people, and especially in the cross, and I, I just think of, of these things in the confines of your own community, um, because you really want to be able to affect change within the role you're in, within the community that you're in black lacrosse players have been speaking about this since God knows when, right? But for some reason, you know, it's been hush, hush, you know, it's been pushed down. The conversation's not been as, you know, amplified because a lot of the times, unfortunately, you know, black people are seen as having an agenda because politics get tied into this. Um, when, you know, it really has just been for as long as you can remember in this nation, just a battle cry of like, we want your help and we need your help to fix this for the sake of the nation that we've been built on, which is a nation of equality and every man is equal, no matter race, color, creed, or religion. And I think that the microcosm of that is in our sport where I was able to, you know, not knowing who I was, a lot of people, right? And if you talk to me, you might know, you might know, and I was an advocate for it in my, in the spaces I was in, but perhaps I didn't have enough of a platform prior to playing the PLL to be able to be an amplified voice to the point where people trusted me 
I had the credibility as a player. I, you know, the, the character and, and who I am as a person was never going to be seen as, you know, degraded um, for me speaking up. And it was very much like, wow, like he got our attention because we trust him and respect him and he's not black, unfortunately. Um, or we, I don't, he never looked black to us. Um, and I knew that. And that was why I, I kind of seized the moment in the sense that if I can affect this change, this conversation and allow my other black teammates who have been speaking on this for so long to now come in and speak their truth, we can then begin to infect change in our community. Um, and since that's happened, right, I've had a lot of conversations. I've spoken to, you know, a number of players, spoken to a number of coaches. I've spoken on, you know, the committees. And, you know, I think now we look at it, how I look at it is like, how can that, you know, that moment not turn into, not just be a moment, right? How can it now be a movement? Um, and I've all my life been in, in positions where, you know, I've never had responsibility be something that I wanted. It was more so like I recognized there was, there was a moment that I needed to be responsible in. And as a result, you know, gain more responsibility. Um, and I think of this in the same, in the same light, right. Where, you know, maybe there needed to be another player that spoke up. Like Kyle has been doing it for a long time at the highest level and has been as the premier player, right. In the, in the spotlight. Um, but I don't think that someone's been able to kind of take that torch and, and really kind of continue that conversation. And like, Frankly, it gets tiring, right? As a black man, always trying to advocate for black people. Yep. Um, and I knew that that if I could express what I did and, and have the experience I had and and be in the conviction I did have in that moment, then I would be able to kind of alleviate some stress and, and some of that from Kyle and be able to kind of continue to push the conversation forward in a way that, you know, I felt could get action, right? And at the end of the day, you can only control what you can control in your community. So I think being able to now curate the conversation um, in ways that I've always been about action. Like if I wanted to go to Rutgers and change the program, like what did that take and how could I do it? And who did I need to get the answers to, to how to do that? And then how can I actionably imp impact and do it? And then it's done. Right. And that's how I've always been my whole life. And I don't look at this any differently. And I look at it, how can I change my community? And now how can I take this conversation, put it into action and then see real change. Amazing, man. Well, we, uh, we're obviously really blessed and lucky to to have you not only as as a player in the POL but just as a sport that that needs to have this conversation and take action to have you in in the leadership position so um you know thank you for doing that and we're going to continue to support and do our part but also um you know support the the part of of our black lacrosse players especially in the POL which um you know, I was having a conversation with Nat and, and uh, Harry last weekend. They were going, you know, we, we have over uh, 20 black players on active or inactive rosters, and, and we'll share, uh, as, as the rosters come out, we'll see the final tally of, of black lacrosse players in the PLL that are playing in the champ series. But they were both like, damn, at what point, th that number to me feels small, like, because mm -hmm. I'm like, you know, we have 154 players. Yeah. But they were like, damn. In what world would, would we, us growing up as black players, Kyle and Nat, would we have ever thought that there would be over 20 black lacrosse players playing professionally, right? Because it's, it's a trickle up too, right? You've got to have, you get, you've got to start, so you've got to be a player first. And so if we're clogging <clears throat> the faucet for starting, then you're, you're just by math, you're going to have fewer guys make it to the pro level. So, mm -hmm. you, you know, you look at the trickle up in pro sports, you've got to have people playing. And that's the case of even, right, the, the, the latest act of racism with Bubba Wallace and NASCAR that happened yesterday um, is that he's the only black NASCAR driver. 
And so, um, so anyway, going, going back to that, they were like, wow, this is amazing. It changed my perspective because I was like, damn, I, uh, I didn't look at it that way. I looked at it as, oh, there's so few. Um, and, and we got, we got to get that number higher. Um, and cause our, our sport deserves it. Um, and, and, uh, you know, those who want to play the sport deserve it. And I think like any industry in any sport, uh, your, your participants, your players should be a reflection of how our country looks and which is a very diverse pool of people. And, um, and so anyway, I'm, I'm a long way of saying I'm super, uh, proud and blessed to be a, be a part of this and, uh, and continue to, to kind of push forward and not only the, the black lives matter movement, but also, um, you know, th thinking about, you know, greater action that we can take as a league, uh, to be more inclusive, uh, to invest more in the communities and, uh, and to change this game. Totally. I, uh, I think at the end of the day, it really, it comes down to opportunity, right? Like if we have, you know, more players afforded the opportunity and these players, like we know lacrosse, how amazing of a game it is. Like naturally, if, if we could snap our fingers and have everyone across the country be playing lacrosse, like they're playing baseball, you know, our pro league will reflect what it has to reflect. Right? It'll, it'll just, it'll like, it'll trickle up. Like you're saying, more players will fall in love with the game. More players will get them playing college. And then naturally more players will be playing at the pro level. Um, and I think, it's a, it's a game of progress at the end of the day. And with, with reference to coach Matt and, and Kyle, you know, when I was younger and looking at the pro game, you know, I always saw Kyle and Chaz Woodson um, and Javon, right? Like that was kind yeah. of who I was seeing. Um, and now, you know, maybe these players are seeing, you know, a lot more. Yeah. And at the end of the day, like we can look 10 years from now, how can we speed up that process so that instead of, you know, 20, there's 40 or 50 at the pro level. Yep. Um, and then they, these kids will just have more guys to look up to and it'll kind of just be a chain reaction and, at the end of the day, it's a sport, right? It's competition. It, if you don't cut it, right, you don't cut it. But to know that there's more opportunity for those guys to be able to have the chance to cut it, right, that's what it's all about. Yeah, I liked uh, – so we had Dr. Harrison, uh, who's, who's Kyle's father, played for Morgan State. He's a pioneer for uh, black lacrosse players at the college level. Um, he, we had him speak to the company last week, and he also brought up a, another salient point in addition to opportunity to play – is uh, really focusing on who our coaches are at the youth level, high school level, and college level. Um, yep. But he was like, not just by race, but by those who understand the current deficit and lack of opportunity and uh, how to uh, effectively um, communicate and be there for a lot of a lot of programs right now that just have one black player or two black players like that in and of itself mm -hmm. is an individual conversation that Dr. Harrison was educating on that needs to be had between coach and the player coach and the player's family coach and the white players specifically with the whole group. So there's like a, there's a, there's a, uh, there's a process, um, mm -hmm. such that people feel more comfortable with the opportunity. So coaches, I think are a big one, something that I've been thinking a lot about and figuring out ways that, that we can be helpful too. Totally. I mean, when I think about coaches, right, I just think about these coaches in college basketball, college football, right? You got these guys from these top programs in the country. They're going down to these areas that these guys are living in, these black players, and they're going and sitting in with their parents in their yep. houses and explaining how I'm going to take your son out of this environment that he's in because he's a great player, football and basketball primarily. You're going to trust me as a man that I'm going to take care of him and I'm going to make sure I do right by him. 
Um, and that happens at the highest level, right? And I think that in our game is a very much just a, like it's it's further not as far along as those sports, but like I think it would be the same model. Like how can we build the trust within the communities from the coaches to know yeah. that like hey like this game is for you. This is what it provides. This is the opportunity. I mean, we might not be the NBA or the NFL right now, but like we also look at how many players don't make it to the NBA and the NFL. And that's a problem in those sports in general is like those guys go to school, they get sold on this dream, they tire their bodies out, they, they, they put their bodies on the line, their minds on the line, and then they graduate. And it's like some, a lot of those guys just get left behind, right? In our sport, if you graduate, right, in the, in the sense that you go to this four-year college with ultimately a lot of these schools have great degrees, like that network, that opportunity. Now, even if you don't make it to the PLL, you're set up. Yeah. Right? You have the mind and, and the, the ability to now build a family and, you know, go achieve whatever you want in this world, um, which is that doesn't happen for the NBA and NFL in terms of college um, in a lot of ways. Those guys go and if they don't make it, like a lot of them just don't end up, they don't end up doing much, yep. unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good call. And it wasn't until the 80s, early 80s, where college basketball coaches were doing that. That's what your pops, Gus, and I and Mike were talking about a month ago is how Dean Smith at, at UNC was one of the first to, to do that and like have conversations in black communities with recruits. Um, mm -hmm. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing and a very important thing to educate ourselves on, not just around systemic racism, institutional racist policy and ways to act um, uh, largely off of the current environment we're in, but then also learn about how racism has taken shape specifically in sport, which is kind of different to, mm -hmm. to even your call out and the ultimate deciding factor, which I think why sport has been a industry that has been a part of change. If you think about Jackie Robinson and Muhammad Ali is like more times than not, and Jim Brown more times than not, and it's it still exists now where where there is where there is racism even against skill, but more times than not, skill prevails, and that's it's like a it's a neutralizer and has been a neutralizer uh, for race over the last you know call it five to six decades, which is mm -hmm. important because in the workplace it, it there's plenty of studies that suggest otherwise. So, um, mm -hmm. all right, brother, this was great. I uh, I, I loved having you on. So so many stories. I I, I, I feel like I, I went to high school with you. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you uh, you having me on. I know uh, obviously listen to the podcast a lot, and I respect you a lot. Um, so it's, it's been great. Cool. Let's. Uh, I'll see you. In, I'll see you in a few weeks, man. I'll see you, see you in a few weeks. Yeah. Stay healthy. We're gonna go back into like quarantine mode uh, after the fourth. You know, so don't fuck around. Um, I know you won't. I'm not. This is, I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah. we're in the office now doing essential work, but I'm, uh, I'm only in here for another week and a half and then back on lockdown. So, but the, the larger goal is, is just, is, is so much in front of us being able to get to Utah, play on NBC for a championship over two weeks. It's just gonna be fucking great. Yeah. I'm excited. I think the, the prospect of this event, just with baseball, it's like the Olympic time. Like, I think it's going to be, again, opportunity within the challenge that it's going to turn a lot of heads. Oh, yeah. All right, Jules. All right, my man. Appreciate you, man. All right, that is today's show. Thanks again to Jules for hopping on and being so open about his experiences, uh, both real and fun. I know we went after Ty Zanders a little bit, and uh, I'm going to retweet that. Thanks for listening. Subscribe. Give us five stars. 
leave us a review. And uh, this is Unbuckled Chinstrap. We love having you listen. And uh, we have a few more guests before the championship series this July 25th to August 9th. So mark your uh, TiVo, your TV, your on-demand features, your YouTube TV, your Hulu. Make sure that you're watching every game. We're going to release our broadcast schedule very shortly. NBC, NBC Sports, and NBC Gold. Jules and I are fired up. We're going to go head-to-head um, early on in group play as Atlas play the Redwoods. Thanks for listening. Mm.